Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host uh, and your friendly pro-bending announcer. I should talk in a, an old-timey radio voice here. Uh, Paul Smith of the Gobbledy Geek Podcast. And joining me, as always, are... Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Uh, this, this week, we continue to fly through The Legend of Korra, book one, Air, uh, it there, uh, with two more chapters, 103, The Revelation, and 104, The Voice in the Night. Um... Before we get to those, uh, we didn't talk about this before. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't ask you guys if there was anything you wanted to banter about. I really felt like there was some sort of Avatar or Korra connection that I had found to this thing that I want to talk about, and I have no idea what it is. I, I cannot. I cannot recapture the magic that I felt like I had spotted earlier this week. So screw it. I'm just going to bring it up. Uncharted Four. Can't talk about it very much because. Eric, I assume you still have not played it, and you will be playing it. I, I just started it, actually. Oh, okay. I, um, I played. I am up to the. Um, I'm in the middle of the uh, auction heist. Right oh, now. okay. All right. Um, yeah. Well, I will. I will just say that uh, I have. I, I'm a fan of the entire Uncharted franchise, and uh, Uncharted Four has a lot to live up to. It's uh, Amy Hennig is no is not involved in this. Uh, installment and it is the supposedly the final installment in the franchise franchise this is closing out the series so you know there's there's a lot riding on this on this one's shoulders but um, no spoilers whatsoever for you Eric I will just say I am 200% satisfied with it that's all I really want to hear I I, you know I'm I'm coming off of three which I actually was was very lukewarm Mm -hmm. on and that did have Henning who was, who created these characters. I mean, her, you know, most of the series is success. I think you can give to her, but, and I don't know, you know, maybe it was a bad experience. I know they pulled a bunch of people off of three to do the last of us. So I'm not blaming her Mm -hmm. for three, but, um, Drake's deception. Is that what the third one subtitle is? Yeah. That was, is, is kind of a mess. And the, the plot, is kind of a mess and in fact there's a point really early in this game where your brother you you drake's brother comes back and he asks like what have you been doing he's like oh there's so much to tell and he says pick just pick the one the, your your favorite mm-hmm. and you get a choice to pick the plot of one two and three and i picked two obviously because you know but anyways i said i, I thought i looked at aaron and i said i want to know who the poor sap is who actually picked three <laughs> as the plot <laughs> as the best one yeah um but but so far it's great i saw elena and i i just want I mean, my big complaint about this at the beginning so, is that so 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 you've 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 done the the at oh yeah so you've gotten yeah. past the at home stuff yeah. oh it. I love oh, it I loved it beautiful when they play crack so there's a point in the beginning of this where you sit you like you have dinner with Elena and you're arguing over who's gonna make di- make wash the dishes and he challenges her at her favorite video game which turns out to be Crash Bandicoot like <laughs> the original PlayStation One Crash Bandicoot <laughs> yeah and there's this brief period where you play Crash Bandicoot as Nathan with Elena and Nathan talking over it like bantering over it which is basically why I love this series in a nutshell yes yeah so. I love Elena. I'm just worried they're going to keep her sidelined again, which has like been the problem with the series since the second one. Mm-hmm. They keep. It's why side- the second one was the best one. 
yeah, she actually was a much bigger part of the second one than than General. And I, Elena is my favorite character. I would love. I want like a journalistic adventure with Elena <laughs> as as like a side quest. I would just play that entire game. But but so far, I'm really happy. I love the humor. It feel, still feels like Uncharted, which yeah. is the which is the thing I was afraid it wouldn't. It still feels like Uncharted to me. Yeah, and uh, I was. I was super nervous going into it with the whole uh, introducing a long lost older brother that has never been mentioned in any of the previous games. I was like, this is, this is one of those iffy, like almost retcon things that I'm usually not a fan of. I was, uh, so I kind of, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I started playing the game. I was like, all right, you guys have to earn this. If you want me to buy this whole older brother coming back from the dead thing, this really had had better blow me away. And uh, I'll, I'll just say that by the end, I'm completely satisfied. I'm totally happy. I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear that. I'm, I, I did like, like Aaron's <laughs> Aaron watches me play uncharted. She's like totally into the story mm-hmm. of uncharted. So she'll hang out with me while I'm playing it, which she does not do with most games. And um, her, her comment pretty early into this was Nathan's brothers are no good, Nick. I don't like him. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I, there, I, there's yeah, he's a little fishy. Uh, but the the voice actor for Samuel for Sam is a uh, Troy Baker, who I believe was the intended to be the original voice for for uh, Nathan. Really, I think he was originally going to voice Nathan, and I don't remember what happened. I don't know if he couldn't do it or if they changed their mind. But yeah. So, Boy, would that not have worked out the same way? Well, it's interesting because I mean, I absolutely love Nolan North. He he's spot on perfect um but there i don't know if you've reached this point in the game or not but at at certain point one of the great things that this series does is and i and i feel like this game actually does it better than any of the previous ones is the characters will just like banter with each other as you're playing the game if you're in a moment where like you're not fighting or or you know whatever they'll just be dialogue that they're having with each other and it's it's fantastic and Every once in a while, it's a little difficult for me, at least. It's a little difficult for me to tell the two apart. Like, they'll be talking to each other, and if you if you don't see who's talking, it takes me a second to figure out was that was that Nathan or Sam that just said that. That's so I right. I feel like their voices are similar enough that you can buy that they're brothers, and I could see how Troy maybe had been considered for Nathan before. But. That makes sense to me. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, I'm going to be playing it pretty. I actually have off tomorrow. I'm taking a much needed uh, vacation the next two days. Not really a vacation, but I'm taking some time off. And I was afraid because I had jury duty selection today. Mm-hmm. I actually had to go into the courthouse, and I sat around for pretty much the whole day. And and I was nervous because I was like, I'm going to get selected, and in the two days I was going to take off and like relax are going to be gone. But I was not selected, and I am free of it. So I'm going to be playing Uncharted a lot tomorrow because that's basically what's on the docket for me sweet so So i want again really quickly before we move on i want to ask you eric have you played the last of us um no i have not okay um i had not either and when i finished um uncharted um so many people for so long have been saying that the last of us is amazing uh friends of friends of ours friends of the show have told me that you know it's in their opinion, the one of the best video games of all time. Anyways, I was like, all right, fine. I, I'm I'm in a naughty dog mood right now, so I will finally I'll go out and I'll buy uh, The Last of Us, and this will put me on a lot of hate lists, perhaps. 
Um, but, uh, I'm so far not really a fan. It's, it has not won me over. I'm only maybe four or five hours into the game. So I don't know, but it's so far, it's not my cup of tea. I much prefer the uncharted games. See, you guys, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about all of this and remembering a time in my life when I actually used to play video games. I cannot remember the last time I really played a video game. It was probably uh, right after uh, Arkham Origins came out. Not Arkham Knight, Arkham Origins. And I didn't even finish that game. So it's been at least a couple years and I, I, I would love to. I would love to jump back in. I just don't, especially talking about Uncharted 4, The Last of Us, these are games I really want to play. And I just don't know if I would ever find the the time to sink into them. But as you've been talking, I've been like on eBay trying to see like what the deals are for a PlayStation 4. So who knows? We'll, we'll see. Well, you've, you've got a birthday coming up. We can, we can start a, a... A Kickstarter, a, a crowdfund for a, a, a GoFundMe for, for me to get a PS4. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a noble cause. So if uh, if any listeners out there are fans of our uh, our main show, Gobbledy Geek, if you want to hear us do an episode about the Uncharted franchise, uh, contribute to the Get Arlo a PlayStation Four fund, <laughs> and you you can make that dream come true. This is great. This is a great idea. You all know Trump is going to be president in a few months, so <laughs> just make the world a better place by kicking in a few cents for me to get a PlayStation. Wow. All right. Well, since we brought up Trump, we should talk about the person trying to make Republic City great again. <laughs> wow. Nice. That was good, Eric. That wasn't even like me good. That was like actually a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Arlo, as as the newbie, uh, you get to start us off. So uh, why don't you explain to us what... So chapter 103, the revelation. Uh, what was the revelation? You want a revolution. I want a revelation. There you go. Uh, I... Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the question I am having. I agree. Amon, uh, the Trump of Republic City, Amon is a terrible, awful, no good, bad person. I agree. But, and again, not knowing how any of this plays out, and not knowing if the show deals with these issues, it occurred to me while watching both of these episodes that, so this is just my angle on it as someone who has literally only seen four episodes of this show, it seems to me that, uh, so we have the, the Benders... Uh, versus the 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 non-benders, the, the equalists is the the faction that uh, Amon leads, um, and it occurred to me that technically you can look at this story in a way that the villains in the story are the oppressed people, and the heroes are the oppressors, <laughs> and I don't know how to I don't know how to process that. I, I think that there is I think that's that is um that's a really valid way of looking at it. And I, I think that I, I don't want to comment too much because there are certainly things we're going to learn about the the top level characters involved, but there is I think a very valid undercurrent of bitterness that the non benders in this world feel, as they should, yeah. in a world built around bender being better i mean the big celebrity sports movement is a bender sport as you said last week um look when that when 
there's an in this episode when Mako needs work, he goes to the factory, and the factory is entirely firebenders shooting lightning. Yeah. So there's a job that you can only get as a bender. Oh, see that now that is okay. That totally valid that you put that spin on it, but I was actually going to use that as an example of life isn't all hunky dory for for benders either, because that is really a blue collar job, and it it you know it looks like. Uh, an unpleasant factory kind of job. It, it, no, it's, it's not a great job, but I think it's interesting is that, that, that is a, that is a blue collar factory job that only a bender could right. get. So what are right. the jobs that non-benders are getting right. in the factory? Like that is not a great job. That's a pretty shitty job, but that is clearly the, like a much more, um, probably higher paying job because there's a limited number of people who can do that. You need firebenders who can shoot lightning Right. So you're talking about a much narrower. So I'm going to guess that their union rep negotiates much better pay for them <laughs> than, than the non-benders. Um, but but no, anyways, point being that, that there is the anger that a lot of people are feeling is valid. And obviously because there's an awful lot of people who are like angry about it. And the anger makes the benders super uncomfortable, which I think is interesting. Like Cora and Ma, they're all sort of like defensive about the situation. Which I think is very interesting. Uh, I think I like the fact that uh, our quote unquote heroes may be, I hate the word problematic, but the, that there are problematic elements of our heroes. Like pretty explicitly in, in this chapter, uh, Cora does not recognize her own privilege. Yeah. And, and she gets called on it a couple times. And to her credit, I guess she doesn't immediately... You know, she doesn't push back against it when when she's called on her privilege. She's like, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't think of it that way. So she's a very mature 17 year old. But still, she clearly has this sense of privilege and uh, and it colors the way that she sees the world. In fact, after she was called on it uh, one time, like she was she she backed down. She was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't think of it that way. And then she immediately goes and uh, and oppresses the the protester the equalist guy like she does exactly what he said she was going to do which is uh, uses her bending to to terrorize him basically yep so so before we get to the revelation of the revelation arlo i'm I, I, we kind of got we were talking about sort of the basic ideas of this but you know this episode kind of gets into like the uh the the pro bending stuff early on before we get into the plot how did you feel about this episode because it kind of starts as a character episode in a lot of ways it does yeah with uh um the fire ferrets need what is it thirty thousand yuans mm-hmm. uh, to get into the tournament, and then you have uh, uh, I'm still trying to to remember which one is which. Bolin is the ner- is the nerdy one. Yes, yes. Bolin is the, like the Sokka of the show. Yes. Okay, yeah. uh, so Bolin uh, approaches the the triple threat triad, trying to to get money. They used to work for the triple threat triad when they were orphans. They ran numbers for them. I thought that was an interesting. Uh, detail. Um, I definitely liked all of that, and I, I. But it does kind of get consumed by the like walking away from this episode. I'm thinking about the revelation, but I thought all of that worked as well. I I, I actually really love the little Harry Potter dig in this thing, where they're like, "You don't happen to have a secret Avatar bank account overflowing with gold, do you?" <laughs> I didn't even uh, pick up on that. That's great. And and I but I do like Cora being like, I've got nothing. People just usually give me stuff. And Mako being like, Well, then I don't think you have nothing. Yeah, is yeah, right. is a good one of the moments that you were kind of getting at Paul, which it's her, her her privilege. Yep. Yeah. Um. But I 
Yeah, that was great. But yeah, it does lead it leads um, Bolin into some trouble as he gets hired by his old unsavory pals, which kicks us off into the actual plot. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, actually, wait, wait, it, before we get to that, actually, we get okay. So I'm curious, Ar- Arlo, because this is actually yeah. like this is the kind of stuff that makes me really excited about it. There's actually two instances that are kind of callbacks to Avatar, things we learned in Avatar, and the first is how the Equalists are able to fight with vendors. Yeah, where we get what their uh, quote unquote superpower. Yeah, is. the uh, the the chi blockers, right? Yes, I was really. I was impressed by that uh, connection to Avatar. Like it, it uh, completely took me by surprise, but at the same time, that was a big part of the plot in like the second half of Avatar. Um, and I, yeah, I thought that was a great way to do that. And also just because I think the Chi blockers are kind of badass. Yeah, like they're they're they're, they're fucking ninjas. Yes, they are. And I, I thought that was very cool. Um, there's there's this overall theme in Korra of. The individual superpowers of the of Team Aang and the and the villains in that becoming sort of um, part of the culture yeah. in Korra, which I really like. There's a lot of them, and this is one of them that that um, Tylee's chi blocking is now like really useful. And so, of course, the Equalists are going to learn it. Look at you! You yeah. remember Tylee's name? Doesn't happen very often. I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> do we uh, do we get an update at any point on Tylee? I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Think. I don't know if we get May or Tylee. Quite frankly, I honestly don't remember. That is a, that is an honest don't remember. Well, I think uh, hopefully we'll get more of May in the the comics. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of Pabu? Before we move on, we have to say. Oh, Pabu! I forgot they introduced Pabu. Pabu is is awesome. Yeah, is this the first time we've seen Pabu? It is. He was great. There's an awesome moment where Naga gives this big roar and then Pabu just gives like a, a defiant little squeak. Yeah. Right after. That was awesome. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, I'm, I'm, I'm team Pabu. He's a, he's a friend, not a snack. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I do love his little, like, is he a ferret monkey? Is he's, that what they said? No, he's a fire ferret. Yeah, fire ferret. Okay, they, they someone refer. Oh, someone like derisively referred the, to him. Like yeah, a yeah. Their here. little their little uh, informant kid Scoochie was like, uh, they said, well, what was Bolin doing? And he was like, I don't know. He's putting on some monkey ferret show or whatever. That was great. I love I love his little like, uh, his hit handstand walk yeah. across the thing. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, I I, I I was curious how you think. Of, I wasn't sure what you'd think of Pabu because I I actually my first time through I was skeptical of Pabu because I was like this is. I was like, do we really have to have everyone has animals? Just like we're just gonna have a Momo and an Appa. And that's true. Um, that's true. He is he is the Momo to Naga's Appa. But I like I mean, I like him so far. I'm a fan. I, he doesn't he doesn't seem too uh overtly Momo ish. So it doesn't feel like a retread. I me. I was concerned on the first watch, I came around on them and this time through I'm like hundred percent in for them. So that was just a concern I think when I had watching them. Like that was like a concern the first time I had watching it, so that's why I was curious what your first time was gonna be through. But I, I think you have the appropriate response, not the shitty response that I had. <laughs> I was I was pretty immediately taken with Pabu. I'll admit it. <laughs> Good. Right on. Um, and, oh, 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 speaking of the cheap blocking, how phenomenal is that first fight against them? Where it's pretty Mako. Phenomenal. Oh my god! How the animation on that is just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it gets a little Akira there for a moment with the motorcycles and the, the chase through the city streets. Yeah. And a... uh, I, 
I love in this episode, I think in, pre- in previous episodes, we saw Republic City at night a little bit. But in this one, this is sort of the noir episode, or it, it has a noir look. Almost the entire chapter, maybe both of these chapters, I think, are almost entirely at night. And it's all like foggy and there's gaslight and it's all in like like rust tones and everything. I, I loved the look of these episodes. And I'm really getting into the jazzier score cool. uh, for this series. Like, I, I think that really complements the, the the time period. It's also a little jarring just because I'm still not used to, even with, you know, all of the the the, the cars and the industrialization and all of that, I'm still not quite used to it. I keep waiting to hear, like, a, a pan flute or something. Instead, it's it's jazz. We, we get the occasional callback. My favorite music cue in this was actually when they uh shit i'm totally forgetting which episode was which when they go and uh, uh they do the raid that's in uh, that's in the voice the next in the one. that's, that's in the, the next one, one. okay yeah. well there's a music cue in there uh we actually hear it a couple times but i remember it at that moment uh there's a music cue that sounds a little more reminiscent of like the old school avatar music um, um, all right, what else did we get here? Uh, we got um, Cora. <laughs> I loved... Uh, we didn't get as much of the kids this time as, as yeah. we have in the past, but we did get the, the two girls, uh, Icky and Janora, uh, teasing her about Mako, and then <laughs> she, like, earthbends them, just throws yeah. them away. Like, that was hilarious. great, and I, and I love that we that they made sure in the background we see them float safely to the ground because, yeah. of course, they're airbenders. <laughs> Still giggling. Still giggling. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, I also really enjoyed seeing that Cora is now an expert at, uh, I still don't know what to call it, like panel walking. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, she, she's now an expert at that, and that comes in handy once uh, her chi has been blocked and she can't bend. Um, she, uh, she Dancing like the wind becomes uh, a major advantage in fighting. Mm-hmm. I, I actually really like that Cora doesn't have any context on chi blocking at all. Mako has to explain it to her. Yeah, she freaks out. Which is great. And what I really like about it is because her reaction to that is in a... This, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually like really fanboying about Korra at this point, and I actually didn't think this was going to happen, but I kind of am. But it's an amazing precursor to her reaction to the revelation of the Revelations title, mm-hmm. um, of how she's going to react to that. And I really like that because the idea of this chi block and keeping her from bending seriously freaks her out. Um, so it, it, which, which I think is great because it informs the later stuff. So much, so much of her character is tied to the fact, tied to the way that she was raised. She was raised in seclusion. She's been told since she was four years old that she is, that she's special. She's the one. She is so invested in the idea that she's the avatar. Damn it. You've got to deal with it. Um, that, uh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they did a good job of selling the fact that for a bender, the idea of having your bender, your your bending stolen from you is really traumatic. Like when they were all lined up after uh, Lightning Bolt Zolt gets his bending taken away, you yeah. see they're all terrified, and one of them is like weeping. So it's a scary thing altogether. But like Cora, she really identifies herself as the Avatar, and so and we'll, we'll I have a note on that when we get to the voice in the night. Uh, about how she, her identity is so closely tied to that that it really, just the thought of not having her bending is traumatic to her. And I still really love that contrast with Aang because Aang was 
in many ways the opposite of Korra in that he did not really want to accept his destiny. He he was not infested in the fact that he was the Avatar. And so it's interesting to have a protagonist who who very clearly like she knows that she is the one and she wants to be the one and the idea that some that someone can come along and make it so that she's not the one uh that's that's a huge scary thing for her mm-hmm. uh so i wanna can we talk about him on now <laughs> yeah let's go let's get it let's get into the revelation aspect of the revelation. okay so um well arlo why don't you uh explain to us what the revelation was i guess we've already said it (laughs) well yeah so the revelation is that amon has the ability which only the avatar has ever had before uh to permanently take away someone's bending ability right um we saw of course ang do that with fire lord ozai at the end of avatar Mm -hmm. and it's it is it's a definite threat that so we saw uh, when we see Aang take away Ozai's bending, that was like a huge, a hugely triumphant event in that series. Like the whole series had been leading up to that point. It was amazing to witness. We didn't even know that could happen. And now, right at the start of Korra, it's something the bad guy can do. And I think that establishes an immediate threat. But this is another one of those callbacks to Avatar that I really love because it's actually sort of traumatic and um, confusing because. You know, it, without the end of Avatar, someone taking bending away would feel like a interesting plot thought that someone had to freak everyone out. Mm-hmm. But having just seen Aang have this power, you know, at the end of Avatar makes this moment, like, really terrifying and confusing, especially given Amon's explanation of how he got it. Yes, that... that's that's what I wanted to, to ask. Uh, I want to get Arlo's thoughts on what... What do you think about Amon's claims of of how he got this power? I feel like a big idiot because I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> he he claims that the spirits That's right. That's are, right. Okay. Are, are displeased with the avatar and so a pro- came to him and gave him the power uh to create equality. Because he's a scary bad guy who wears a mask, I tend to think that's just something he's saying. <laughs> Uh, to like to to inspire fear in people, like it's it's a good propaganda recruitment tool to say that the, the spirits told him that it is his mission to take to, to remove the mm-hmm. to, to take down the avatar. Um, but at the same time, I I mean I, I don't know. I suppose uh, the spirits could 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 think the avatar has lost her way. I mean, um, a, a big thing here is that Korra does not have any kind of spiritual connection that we've seen. That is true. That is a really good point. Yeah, she has she has absolutely no connection to the spirit realm and, and no idea of what the spirit realm has in store for her or what would want what she would want from her. I mean, that, it, and she's more cut off from the spirit realm than it seems like any avatar has been. Mm-hmm. And so maybe her, the spirits are just lonely, and then all of a sudden the scary guy in a mask shows up, and they like they're like, "Hey, we need a shoulder to cry on. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna let them know all about." Uh, like the the avatar is pissing us off. Hey man, dig your mask. Want to have some superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what I really love about this, like the 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 revelation moment, is that he he claims it, and then he does something unexpected, which is let the person fight him mm-hmm. to do it, which actually makes him a lot scarier because he keeps letting these benders come at him and trashes them, and then takes their bending away, and he. He 
the, in a lot of ways, um, Amon is to me maybe the the scariest villain of the Avatar verse because of this, because of his whole mode of operation, what his power is. Um, he he's just he's very unsettling as a villain because his whole thing is making the people feel powerless. Like it's not just that he takes their bending away; he makes them feel powerless in the fight first, and then takes their bending away. And he's there's like a horror villain aspect of the way Amon works that I find really, really effective. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, there's also, you know, elements of ethnic cleansing, I suppose we could, we could throw in there. I don't know. There's, it's a really disturbing, like he's trying to, to purify. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The race. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, this is the Amon, avatar avatar version of eugenics, I guess. He's the thing with Amon is he is a populist demagogue. I made a I made a Trump joke earlier about it, but the thing about Amon is he is playing the populist demagogue card in this entire fight. In that he has a really good point, but he is clearly a not okay individual who is using the the bitterness and anger and fear of everyone around him to bolster his ability to pull off whatever the fuck it is he actually wants to pull off. And what he's doing is, I mean, taking away people's bending in front of a crowd as a show and beating them up is just not what a good person does. Like, there's not a good person action, regardless of whatever merits his case has. And it makes him really scary because he is using what he's doing to stoke the crowd even further. Mm -hmm. Like, that it is... Just every aspect of how he works makes him a scary political leader on top of the fact that he's also kind of just scary as a person. Uh, Arlo, I, I want to get your thoughts. What do you think of how they represented him taking away people's bending? Because we've only seen that done once before right. this, and, and it looked different here. It did. So so you mean like at the end of Avatar, when Aang takes away Ozai's bending, it was it looked like a, a a major like battle of the wills. Yeah, it was all like they were both glowing and there was <laughs> Yeah, there there was a, a battle of wills and, and one one well, person th- had the glow. But... I think you <laughs> I think you could uh fan wink that by saying Lightning Bolt Zolt probably doesn't have the extreme willpower that Fire Lord Ozai did. So if if uh, Amon is as powerful as he seems to be, it probably wasn't that difficult for him to do. Plus, plus there was the whole uh, Sozin's Comet thing happening at that moment. The, oh, very true. Yeah. Very true. Um, I actually really like the effect of it, which was so. So Lightning Bolt Zolt obviously is throwing out lightning bolts, and we see the lightning like diminish into fire and then the fire goes out. Yeah. I kind of liked that uh, progression. And, and actually Zolt, uh, uh, Eric, you talked about how when that happened to Ozai, you know, it was a traumatic thing. Uh, that was the, the first time we'd seen that first time we knew that could happen. And it was, it was pretty traumatic. Um, uh, Zolt's reaction here is actually a mirror of Ozai's. Like he has the same reaction. He says the same thing. What did you do to me? He has the same weak you know, he tries to bend and, and he just collapses exhausted, which is the same thing that Ozai did. So do you think this is still something that most people like most benders don't know can happen to them? Oh yeah. Like, no, I absolutely got the sense that, that like, like, do people know that Ozai got his bending stripped from him? 
I think so. Uh, I mean, I feel I mean, like I think do. some people probably know that. I don't know if it's a thing that like everybody on the street just talks about, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think I think it, it being a power that the Avatar can do is mm-hmm. somewhat known. In you know, I think it's one of the, but I think that. Something that you know the Avatar can do in this world and something that some other guy can do is an entirely different thing. Especially someone who is like a non-bender leading a um, anti-bender movement mm-hmm. having that power. In fact, a you know a non-bender having any power at all is sort of unexpected and a shock. So I think it's a little different than knowing the Avatar can do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, okay, one more thing. What what does this show have against firebenders? <laughs> so we uh, another revelation that we get in this episode is uh, Mako and Bo, uh, Bolin's backstory. Mm-hmm. They were they they went to they went down uh, down Crime Alley and were <laughs> exactly their parents were gunned down by a firebender. <laughs> exactly, but then that's the same story that Amon. T- I mean, not exactly. Was their mom but... named Martha? Maybe <laughs> that's what's gonna happen yeah. in the final battle. They're going to make a Martha thing. Uh, uh, going to go, Martha, why did you say that? Yeah, but but yeah, so Amon has the same thing. Like, he was also, uh, you know, his parents were also killed. His family was also killed by a firebender. What the hell, man? I think we are coming off of, I mean, 70 years ago, the Fire Nation were the dominant bad guys in the world of Avatar. And so it makes a certain sense that... You know, in the the years and generations that follow, there would still be some some bad apples, or still some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like some uh, stigma mm-hmm. associated with being a firebender that maybe leaves your options not as like like you know, firebenders are the 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 shitty blue collar workers of the factory. They're gangsters. They're muggers. Like maybe it's it's in a in a post. Uh, in a post Sozin's Comet world, maybe it's a little more difficult for firebenders to be taken seriously or, or seen as not the not the bad guys. So maybe some of them just lean into it. Well, one good thing to remember is that we are on the site of a Fire Nation colony in the Earth Kingdom. So right. yeah, that, that Republic City is the an area where an awful lot of firebenders used to have control. And then don't anymore. And in fact, it has become neither nation. So there's probably an awful lot of firebender families that were here. And so enough firebenders that had had it, but they're not even members of the fire nation here. They are mm-hmm. on the site of, a, of Udal. I can't think of the name of the, the colony in, um, in the search, but anyway, it, it was, it was Udal, but I'm not sure that that's what this, I, I don't know if Udal became Republic city. I'm pretty sure that's what, that's what the implication was at the end of the, the promise okay. i could be wrong but that was sort of like he was sort of like we're gonna make this a new mm-hmm. city so my read on it was that Udao is where republic city sprouted from but either way it's very close right. so yeah. um anyways that's why i think i think that the fire nation having an awful lot of people and maybe some lingering bitterness would make a lot of sense here yeah uh so uh something i wanted to point out we got we get we get to see the lieutenant in action <laughs> In this episode, um, yeah, and uh, he's kind of a badass with those uh, electrical batons of his. But I just I love the irony that uh, that Mako basically got his ass kicked with 
those like battery powered batons that were probably charged off the grid that Mako earlier that day had been <laughs> contributing to. So like Mako's day job is he charges up these, the, the grid for the city and then the Lieutenant plugs his batons in to get some power and uses that to kick Mako's ass. That's funny. I didn't even think about that. <sighs> Anyways, uh, another thing that I want to point out to go back to my original point I'm not sure how I feel about the villains of this show being associated with the phrase equality now, <laughs> which is a, is a pretty prominent gender equality charity in, in, in our real world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I, I'm struggling with this. Like I, maybe it's just that I, I, you know, so the first time we see anything to do with the equalists in the show is they're, they're represented clearly as sort of like an oppressed minority. That was the, the implication that I got. And so now that the villain of the show, the, the, the Trump of Republic City, is the one who, you know, is seems to be standing up for the rights of – granted, in a, in a really awful, horrible way, he's standing up for the rights of, uh, of, of the, the non-benders. I don't know. Like that's – it's it, it's it's bugging me. It's very complicated. But but see, I I love that. I love the fact that uh, if as you say, as you believe, Amon is a truly terrible person, then I like the idea that he is taking what you know could be a legitimate, uh, perfectly legitimate uh, movement, this equality now thing, and corrupting it to his own purposes. That's true. That's that's totally valid. I just think I need to see more of the show to know where they're going with it. Hmm. Well, I don't we, think it's I don't think it's a problem. I just think it's really interesting and and complicated, and I'm not sure how to how to process it right now. Well, you're in luck because we have more show. Yay! And, I really and thought these four episodes were it. That's it. We got it. We're done. We're done with Cora. <laughs> um, so I guess it's kind of hard to keep talking without getting into the next episode. Yeah. At yeah. this point. Um, so, uh, name, which I can't remember. The voice in the night. The voice. The voice in the night. Yeah, Arlo. How how this one hit you? I excuse. Oh uh, no. How this one? Did this one speak to you? Did the voice in the night speak to you? <laughs> it did. And what it said was, "This is a very good episode of The Legend of Korra." <laughs> um, I, I I really liked this. I liked the fact that uh, so we get Tarlock who's trying to establish a task force to take down Amon. And there's the whole conversation where Tenzin, I think, is, is rightly concerned that that's just going to stoke, uh, you know, unrest between mm -hmm. the, the, the benders and the non-benders. Um, and Tarlock is trying to use his political uh, power and just lavishing these extravagant gifts on Korra to try and get the Avatar on his side uh, to, you know, for the for the, the, the PR of it all. And I, I like that she ignores him mm -hmm. for most of the episode until she feels like she's sort of, she, she gets trapped and she's forced into it because you know why, why, you know, she, she's hounded by the press. Why won't she do this? Isn't she against Amon and the Equalists? And so she gets forced into it. And I sort of like the uh, I like the fact that on this show, we're dealing with an avatar who is in a very public space and is sort of having to hold press conferences or respond to the media. And I like that we get to see what what that's like, how the media responds to the avatar. Yeah. And in in, um, in the original series, it was all about Ava uh, Avatar Aang 
had to hide basically he was on the run yeah and here she's very much uh front and center very public she's in the city that ang built i mean literally like this is ang city like this city exists because of ang there's a great moment so when uh she goes for the meeting with aman at the uh the ang statue i didn't realize when we'd seen it before the the like this the size and stature of it Mm -hmm. and it's it occurred to me the Aang statue in this world is basically the it, it's the Statue of Liberty. It is the Statue of Liberty. Yep. And I I think that is so cool. Yeah. We totally yeah, we completely I didn't think about that. That's a really great call out. Totally didn't think of that. Yeah, I mean if if Republic City is New York, that's that's absolutely the Statue of Liberty. But we completely forgot to mention in the previous episode that we got to see a, a Zuko statue. Really? Uh, yeah, the statue that uh, that Bolin was doing his little. Uh, street hustle thing in Shit. front of that was Zuko holding up his hand with like an eternal flame going. Holy crap. I did. Wow. I totally had not. I never noticed that. <laughs> and last week, Paul, didn't you point out a Toph, a Toph statue, Toph statue in front of the police station? Yeah. And does, does Katara have to croak before she gets her own <laughs> statue or what? We don't know that Zuko and Toph are dead. That's Come true. On. That's true. Uh, all right. Anyways, back to this. So, um, so, I mean, so I actually, so we get we we get introduced to Tarlock in this, who is, let's be honest, a total shitlord. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I, hey, can I just can I just point out because I thought this was I don't think this had ever dawned on me uh, on previous watches. We we see we've heard reference of the council, like Tenzin has mentioned the fact that he's on the council, and that uh, but this is the first time we get to see them, and at least. What we've seen so far, there are five council members. So Tenzin uh, is is the representative of the Air Nomads, and then we don't get names for the others, but we see there's an Earthbender and uh, a Firebender. But there are two Water Tribe members on the council. Uh, I assume I assume that Tarlock says that he's a representative from the Northern Tribe, so I assume that the other water tribe person there is from the the southern tribe but that's five council members two water tribe representatives no non-benders on the council no non-benders at all an entirely bender council i can't believe that never dawned on me before yeah i mean it's Hmm. almost like that scary mask guy kind of has a a point (laughs) maybe hmm which i actually i really love this about this season is that the villain is both despicable and unfortunately pointing to a really important truth mm-hmm. in Republic City and frankly a truth that was there in Avatar too that we never thought of because back then it was like we need benders to fight the the evil fire kingdom but it never occurred to us that the fire nations like once they were gone having an entire world where benders are the only people that matter is just not healthy right, right. and yes. and like how are there no non-benders on the council there's none it's it's like not something they even would have considered because they're they're benders. The benders are the important people in this world. It's it's representatives of the of the various nations, nations that are built entirely around what you can bend, mm-hmm. and thus are benders. Like that is obviously how we got here. It's like well, there's an earth na- there's an earth kingdom, there's a fire nation, and there's two water tribes, and there's like one air, there's one air nomad left. So. Everyone's every one of them sends a representative, and certainly one of them could send a non-bender representative. But like, haha, like any of them are going to send yeah a non-bender representative. I mean, okay, yeah. 
I'm going to step back and say that the Southern Water Tribe person could potentially be a non-bender, given how decimated the Southern Water Tribe bender population was. That's true. You know, you know what? To be, let let me step back a second. It occurs to me we don't see any of those council members bending. I guess we're just taking it as a given that those that there that's an earthbender and a firebender. Uh, and we know that Tarlock are is we, water. We know that are Tarlock we buying is, into Amon's narrative. We I, are, and I, you know what's funny is that we're doing this. But you know the truth is, even the Earth Kingdom, the Earth King was not a bender. That's right. Oh wow, you're right. You're right. Because I was just about to ask, besides Sokka, who was the most prominent non-bender in Avatar, and I guess yeah, the the Earth King and and the Cabbage Merchant, but mostly the Earth King. The well, no, I mean I think that um, well, I guess on the good guy side, yeah. That's... Where where's the representative? No, no, of the no, no. Cabbage hold on, Nation? Suki, Suki, you, Suki, you dumbass. Suki, goddamn, and I'm sorry, and Ty Lee, and Ty Lee. all right, all right, and May, and May. Damn it! All right, never mind. I was clearly wrong. Let's move on. I, I apparently did not even watch Avatar, so let's move on. No, I'm, I'm. Uh, wow, I can't believe that I just instantly assumed that all five of those. We know Tarlock is a waterbender because we see him in this episode. He's, Paul, you are actually a bigot. I guess so. Damn it, uh, uh, Tarlock. So see, Amon is getting in our heads, man. Wow. He's got, he's got a, um, he's got a persuasive argument. I guess. So. And see, I, I like that. I. I I think I'm coming around more on on Paul's end of it. Not that I thought this was a problem with the show, but it was something I was just struggling to process. But I don't know. I kind of like the fact that – and I think, again, some of my final feelings on this are going to be how the show winds up playing with it. But I like the fact that Tarlock seems – or not Tarlock, Amon seems to be a a very bad person who's using a very legitimate – uh, like sense of oppression to manipulate people into doing the wrong thing. It's it's really interesting. I I, I like the fact that it, it it makes you uncomfortable with choosing a side, which is yeah. I think fantastic writing and, and part of what I really love about Korra because Avatar, quite frankly, never did anything close to this in terms of moral gray area. Which yeah. when I made the I think Arlo maybe I, maybe this is my my Angel Buffy comparisons are starting to make more sense now mm-hmm. with this kind of thing but this is kind of what i meant by that is that they are that like angel played with a level like a level of moral gray area that buffy didn't and and shouldn't have because the slayer was the chosen hero in the same way ang is the chosen hero of his series um and in this sure Korra is absolutely the hero but it gets a little more dicey when you get into a big urban area filled with a lot of other people and I think that a lot of uh, – I mean uh, Avatar was a – I don't want to say anything that's going to slight Avatar, especially because I'm only a few episodes into Korra. But I'm, I'm trying to think of like the non-offensive way to say this. Avatar, at least on this sort of issue, was less nuanced. Like it was more black and white in terms of good and evil. And I think that was probably – besides the fact that it was their first show and it was – it seemed to be – uh, more so than Korra, it seems to be like a more of a, a, a kid's show. It's it's skewed younger, I think, than Korra does. Yeah, and besides that, I think the in-story reason for that is that they really were under this awful, like, oppressive regime. Like, it was the it, – it, it, they were living through a war. It was a slightly so, more black-and-white world. 
Exactly. Yeah. And now that you're living in a post-war world, things as they always are post-war become a lot more complicated now when you have all of these people trying to live together. And when there's no when there's no Fire Lord Ozai to fight against, certain inequalities and imbalances are going to become more apparent. Uh, this, is, this is like the conversation we had when we were talking about the uh, uh, the promise yeah. where, Eric, you pointed out that we that Aang was getting a taste of what it's like to be what all the other avatars have had to deal with. Like all the other avatars didn't have a clear cut villain. It wasn't a black and white world. And now Aang is, had created a world that was going to become a lot more nuanced. And okay. So I'm glad we're talking about these like differences between Korra and, and avatar, because I want to actually, this episode specifically has something that kind of, that really gets at why Korra is the series that hits me more personally. And I'm putting it that way because I think Avatar is a fantastic series and I don't want to make anything that sounds like a Korra versus Avatar kind of argument because I think I love both shows Mm -hmm. a lot, but Korra definitely gets under my skin in a different way, like on an emotional level. And A Voice Night gets there because of, in this episode, we get Korra's emotional fallout from realizing what Amon can do Mm -hmm. and her fear over what Amon's power is. And I want to analogize this to there's a, a episode in Avatar near the third in the season Nightmares. What the heck, what is that episode called? Uh, you know what I'm sh- talking about? Like the one right before the Day of the Black Sun. Day- Daydreams and Nightmares or something Daydreams like that. And yes, yeah. yes. And it is Preludes the and Nocturnes. Day- sure. Yeah. Oh god. Um <laughs> and that episode is about Aang having a lot of terrifying fear and having nightmares about facing Ozai. And that episode's fantastic. Those dreams are hilarious. And yeah, it's a, it's a really funny version of that. Right, but but the thing is, Aang's fear of Ozai is a very surface-level child's fear mm-hmm. of facing a guy who might beat the shit out of you. You know what I mean? Like, it is, it is a very rational but very simplistic fear of losing a fight. Mm-hmm. And it works totally in the context of that series. But in this, we get Korra's abject, in-her-heart terror at Amon taking away the thing that makes her her. One of the things I love about this episode is that the the title of it is The Voice in the Night, and The Voice in the Night is Korra's. Like, the episode opens with her nightmare, uh, and the vo- you hear Amon's voice telling her, once I take your bending away, you will be n- you'll be nobody, or whatever. That is Korra's own subconscious talking to her. That's not Amon saying that. Yeah, and and her fear is so personal and so human and it is much more an older person's fear you know like it is not like oh i'm going to lose it's that this is the this is the person who was like i'm the avatar you've got to deal with it like from a being a small child the fact that she was the avatar and could do this was under her skin it was it was embedded in her and here is this person that might defeat her and not kill her but take away who she is and what makes her th- her basically strip her of her self image and that fear is so much more specific and um, maybe i guess a little more mature that for me i i get so into cora because of moments like that that is like when i that maybe this is like maybe like the best thing to call out to say why cora is a series that personally affects me is stuff like this i mean the whole they don't really put this fine a point on it. I, I don't know if this show could get away with putting this fine a point on it, but this basically is kind of a, this, this isn't an abuse or a, um, uh, a violation. Like yeah. it's, it's a borderline rape thing 
with her be, you know, this is a threat of her being violated and having her identity stolen from her. It's, it's, it is a, it is a personal attack and that's what I, what is terrifying about it. And I, and Cora's fear, even the way it manifests, it's not just like, I'm afraid Cora is scared to her bones mm-hmm. by facing him. And we get to the moment at the end of the episode where she's called Amon out and Amon is just an asshole. Amon comes with all of his people just to like make her feel powerless and threaten her. And I, I mean, I know what happens in this season and this whole series and I was anxious watching that scene again mm-hmm. when Amon had her. And this show actually provides uh, a really good reason for why Amon doesn't just take her out right then. Because I feel like we always get these confrontations in genre shows where you as the viewer are like, okay, why doesn't the villain – it's like the James Bond thing. Why is the villain explaining his plan? Why doesn't the villain just like fucking shoot James Bond in the face? And and there's actually a good explanation for that here because Amon uh, says the reason he, he, he says our showdown, while inevitable, is immature. And he's saving her for last because he thinks that if he removes her bending, that's just going to turn her into a martyr and, you know, put, you know, strengthen the opposition. Well, well specifically what I think is interesting here is that his fear – and this is what I like about this and why it works. His his concern is that the nations, the other nations will then get involved. Will rally to her, yeah. Yes. And there's like – it's not just like, oh, the people – like he actually is politically thinking about the situation and that right now he is a Republic City problem and the other nations aren't going to rally against him. But if he goes and strips the Avatar of her power now, then before it he's It becomes ready, like an international incident. Exactly. Suddenly, suddenly the fire nations up in your face and the earth kingdoms up in your face. And is is his movement in Republic City ready to face an army of vendors coming into Republic City to like declare martial law or whatever? And and I like uh, it's absolutely all of that. But uh, there's also the question. uh, The show doesn't ask this, but we could ask the question. What happens if he strips her of her bending? Does that count as the avatar dying? Would a new avatar then manifest? I, I guess not, since it's kind of a reincarnation thing. But I feel like we would be left with a world without an avatar. Yeah. Until yeah, and at least until Korra passed, and she's very young, and people live a long time in this world. Yes. And I almost kind of feel like if Amon were to do that, if Amon were to strip Korra of her bending, he would probably try to keep her captive and keep her alive, so there wouldn't be another. Yeah. Which was which was Ozai's plan with Aang. That's right. You're right. Yeah, I forgot about that. He did not want to kill Aang. He wanted to capture him and keep him because he didn't want another Avatar showing up. Wow. And and yeah, I I find that that moment when he's calling it out very interesting and i want to put a pin in this conversation paul because you're the one who tends to remember to to go back to things so i'm just i'm putting this for you when we get to the season finale i want to go back to this moment that they talk about because i actually have a comment that would be a spoiler but um that i find interesting that i didn't think about until arlo said what he did to 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 which moment this this moment of him saying our thing is premature i'm not killing you now like the james okay. bond villain moment right right, right. Yeah. and i want to comment on the the implications of that because i think they're interesting okay in the finale and, and in a way in an unexpected way okay all right i will make every effort to remember that um i, I may just remember myself but we'll <laughs> so uh 
so obviously the this is all fascinating stuff but we uh we talked briefly about that council meeting and we completely passed over we completely glossed over um what seemed like possibly a little throwaway reference but then we get uh Cora after her confrontation with Amon she has kind of a little uh, a dream sequence or something that happens uh, so in the council meeting, uh, Tarlock says, you know, 42 years ago, Republic City was threatened by another dangerous man, yes. Yakon, and uh, Avatar Aang certainly didn't have any issues with, you know, standing up to that, um, and and uh, that, that upset Tenzin that that was being brought up. So there's a history being mentioned. I love the fact that it's specific 42 years ago republic city something happened and ang was involved and then cora has these weird sort of flashes where she we see adult ang uh we also see i don't know it it went by pretty quick i don't know if you caught this arlo or maybe even eric that we see glimpses of adult toff and adult Sokka. no i did I'm- not I missed that. that. I missed that. I did. I was so fixated on adult Aang. Um, speaking of which, let's remember the beard comment from that's right. From the, the, the promise, but yeah. yes, we, yeah. I missed the other two. <laughs> yeah, Arlo, he, he doesn't have quite the uh, the ZZ Top beard that you were expecting, but right, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's that's really cool. I, I want to know more about this confrontation with Yakon. Like, I guess don't spoil me, but I want to know more, regardless. Okay, no spoilers. Um, all right, we we were doing a lot of talking about. Uh, well, earlier, Arlo, you were asking about the, you know, what important non-benders have we seen? We get introduced to a non-bender. Yes. Um. Before we get to that, I, the last thing I want to say about the Cora. Okay. Plot in this. Um. I I, I like that. So after you know, uh, she says you know she's so terrified. She felt so helpless after, uh, her encounter with Aman, and she like breaks down you know after all of that you know she's really struggling with her fear and Tenzin says admitting your fears is the first and most difficult step to overcoming them and I like that we get this scene of her breaking down like this in a way that is not like the uh the 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 female protagonist getting you know emotional Mm-hmm. Or whatever. It, it's not played like that. It's played as a very legitimate fear and a very important step in her progression to becoming the hero that she's going to be. That actually reminds me of something I, I also wanted to mention in the previous episode. Uh, and it goes to the way that Korra, uh, the, the feminine representation that Korra is in this show. She's obviously the avatar. She obviously has all these powers that she can draw upon, um, but she's drawn we talked about this before she she's drawn uh very she's buff she's an mma fighter um while not be she doesn't lose her femininity but in the in this past episode in chapter 103 we saw her twice demonstrate physical strength like she lifts that uh that equalist guy up by the shirt you know the collar of his shirt and just holds him up and then when she beats the the big like door guard or whatever, when she's trying to get the steam and that guy comes back to confront her, she doesn't use bending to beat him. She like wraps his arm up in the scarf and physically slams him into the wall. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I I appreciate the fact that she can kick ass with 
everybody else on the show. So the, one of the real one of the real wins of this show is, and we'll get back to this theme a couple of times over the course of the seasons, is that Cora strikes a balance as a character, and and this is exceedingly rare for a female character, but is quite frankly, um, vanishingly rare for any character, which is that we get to see a mix of immense strength like very she's a very strong character like both in will and in physical prowess but also deals with trauma in very realistic ways that we get Korra deals with trauma on a level that i i can't think of happening in american animated television at all even like the amon nightmares are a level of emotional trauma that that is rare to see anywhere i, I said in american animation but american tv frankly like her the way her reaction is is so human and so rooted in character that we almost never get that kind of characterization with your like main hero character you might get that with a side character mm-hmm. but to get that with your like chosen one character is is bonkers it never happens so i i really love all of this stuff with um Korra's both the brash strong side of her and the wounded scared and and traumatized sides of her whenever she's facing really difficult stuff um but that said there's another thing that happens in this episode and i want to make sure we don't forget because asami sato yes shows up yeah and we're going to be talking about asami sato an awful lot over the course of this series so arlo what did you think of asami i like her i like her so far uh and i like that uh through her we meet her father hiroshi sato the inventor of the Sodomobile. Um, yeah, I, I I like that whole thing. I like uh, I I, I, cle- I clearly see there's going to be some sort of like ro- uh, romantic like love triangle between uh, her Mako and Korra. Um, but I really like Asami so far. And poor Bolin. What what is going on with Bolin? But yeah, anyways. Uh, Asami opens up one thing, and I, I'm a little more sanguine about this now because I know how it all plays out, right. and I, I actually like how things resolve. But this does introduce something that was an early frustration of mine the first time through, Mine as well, yeah. Which was like this love quadrangle thing mm. that this opens up, where we have Bolin liking Korra, and Korra likes Mako, and Mako likes Asami. And I, I promise everyone out there, and I, I, I'm not, I don't want, I'm not going to spoil by explaining anything, but it resolves, in my opinion, and ver- all of these resolve in fairly good ways. Yeah. Everything about these, uh, by the end of the show, I think actually, it, it not, not even in like necessarily satisfying ways all the times, but it untangles itself, and this does not become the show as a whole. But at this moment, I was like, what is going on? I do not have any patience for this show. Yeah, yeah. Early on, on the first viewing, it, it was very it seemed much more uh soap opera ish than um, avatar had been even though i mean there was the the love aspect the romance aspect in avatar but it gets very much but uh, i think the romance aspect in avatar was basically uh Aang and katara like each other when will they tell each other they like each other right right like that, that was all yeah. now we, we're dealing with the whole love yeah now, now you've got teenagers and young adults and the love quadrangle quad, yeah and uh it is annoying at first, but like Eric says, it just, you know, they find their footing. It's a first season. They It, it, it helps that Asami's actually a really great character. And honestly, even watching this a second time, I was I, th- I actually think I was unfair to the show the first time because 
I really like where all the characters' heads are. I think I may have been reacting to being sick of love triangles Mm -hmm. more than I was reacting to what was actually going on in the show. Mm -hmm. Because at this moment, I feel like everyone's reactions are totally human. Like, I think this is all rooted in good writing. Even though I didn't like it because I was sick of it as a general plot device. But I don't have any problems, actually, the second time through. I think it's being well handled. Yeah, true. And Asami's great. And they're sock. Anyways, oh wait, I, I made a comment before the last episode about how remember Sato mobiles. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, here's Sato mobiles. Yeah, and we actually meet Sato, play- voiced by the amazing Daniel Day Kim. Yes, I yes. thought that was so great. He's fantastic. It's it's fascinating to me that some characters in this world uh, have surnames, while other characters only have like a single given name. So like Mako and Bolin, it's never. It's never stated that they are Mako and Bolin, uh, whatever Shiro, or you know they they are just Mako and Bolin. Whereas Asami is Asami Sato. Her dad is not Hiroshi. Her dad is Hiroshi Sato. That's that's a really good point. Is that is that do you think a reflection of a changing time? I I think maybe I'm trying to remember if anyone. Wait, yes, from Toph, Avatar. Toph, ha- yeah. Toph oh, yes, of course. Who's but nobility? but that was nobility? that was a noble family. Yeah. Yes, yes, and here we have um, Asami Sato, who is not nobility, but but new money in right. a lot of ways. So she is also an upper class person. So, right. is it consistent in the show that that last names tend to be restricted to the upper classes, which I, I, is actually historically accurate in yeah, a lot of ways? I, I think I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, I, it does make sense. Yeah. So. I like right. that. That's a nice touch. I, I was all prepared to say, "Well, why doesn't Cora get a last name? What the? What's up with that?" But no, I like it. And I like that Future Industries has become the official sponsor of the Fire Ferrets. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, so tell me, Arlo, what are you imagining that their uh, their sponsorship uniforms are going to look like? Um, I imagine just plastered with logos, yeah, like, or, or like, like gonna, a NASCAR outfit. Exactly. I was going to say, is this going to be the avatar equivalent of NASCAR? Is that what they call them? NASCAR outfits? Is that like the appropriately like masculine thing to call them? Just NASCAR outfits? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. They're, they're pretty little NASCAR outfits. NASCAR. Uh, um, yeah, sure. NASCAR long johns. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. What else did we get? We get, oh, Hey, uh, an interesting note. Uh, did either of you catch it was I mean it was meant to be a funny moment but it they used it to tie into Korra's fear when uh, when Bolin does his whole like goofy Amon impression when he's like you saved me from Amon that guy was super scary Um, there's a little bit of like creepy spooky music that plays underneath that moment just to show that he's being goofy but Korra is actually really upset I miss that I think I noticed that, but I think I only saw it as like the, the, the surface joke, but that's, that's interesting. So, um, all right. What else do we have? Oh, the raid. So this is the episode where we get the raid. Um, the raid felt kind of untouchables to me. Did anybody else, did it feel like hmm. a, like a prohibition era? Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't think about it that way, but yes. With them hiding in the back of the truck and yeah which I think is very appropriate in the sort of 20s era vibe that this show has. It's super well directed too. that whole thing of them hiding in the truck, mm-hmm. the, the like um, the kind of like special forces esque like lead up to it. And then 
the tactics when they go in, having the water ready, bringing it in and freezing people. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a really it's a real like what's interesting about this is that they take the attention to detail that the martial arts had in, in Avatar and bring in something new to it, which is the attention to detail to like tactics and strategy. Mm-hmm. On these in this raid that I think is really fascinating because you can tell what's going on even though there's almost no dialogue in that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I just, I mean, this ties into my whole love of of superheroes and and like superhero worlds. Just the notion of there are these powers that exist. It's a part of society. How will society use that? Like, what does that mean if you live in a society where there are a bunch of people that can create lightning? Well they work in the factories and they charge the power grid and the police force. Uh, oh, I had this, uh, this is an interesting thought I had because a couple times now we've seen Cora use earthbending in a fight or whatever. And um, like specifically in the, well, in the first episode, of course she got in trouble for ripping up the streets with, uh, with earthbending. But in, in this one, when she has her confrontation well, when she blows the kids away, when she like uses earthbending to, to throw the kids away before they embarrass her, um, for that whole scene afterwards, the, the rock that she pulled up out of the ground is still sitting right there. And then when she gets in the fight with Amon's people at the very end, uh, you know, she, she uses earthbending to try and throw a bunch of them away. For the rest of that scene, in the background, the, the, the ground and the pillars in what is the, the uh, Avatar Aang Museum is all torn up and there's rubble everywhere. So I think it makes perfect sense that the police force in this urban setting where you don't want to be, you don't want to go around ripping up streets or pulling bricks out of buildings that might make the, an entire city block collapse or whatever. They have to find a way of using earth bending. That's not going to destroy the city. And that's why metal bending is, is the weapon of choice. Can I ask a question to you both about this? Like this, all a lot of this, like, like actually this whole raid thing um did it this scene made me a little uncomfortable because the people training certainly don't look like hardened warriors right are you you talking about the scene when they use a a slab of stone to crush that woman against the wall yeah i mean and and we see them fighting they're like they look like teenagers learning kung fu Mm -hmm. yeah it's a little uncomfortable right a little bit yeah Uh, i I would agree with that the use of force did seem slightly excessive it, it's just sort of like, and you know, I actually what, the the metaphor that I think is interesting here is is that, and I, I'm I have to imagine this was intentional is, Tarlock is using the kind of war on terror methodology mm-hmm. that yeah. that doesn't that that actually is counterproductive, and because and, I don't think at any point are we supposed to think the task force is a good idea. No, no, I mean, and, and if anything, it's kind of there as a another side to like why Amon is being successful in his message mm-hmm. because here we are where they are attacking a chi blocking academy which there's nothing illegal yeah about they, learning chi blocking they, they certainly don't make it seem like that's illegal it's just that hey it's almost like common sense self-defense if you're a non-bender yeah i mean it feels like exactly what you would want to learn especially in a world where triads are run by benders and will come and fire bend against you yeah if you want to do it. And like I said, these people are not hardened warriors. There's like two equalists in that room and a bunch of people who clearly don't even know how to throw a punch. And they just swoop the fuck in and are freezing people and hitting people against walls with stone slabs. And then here come the press to make it a big deal. Because look, we took down like three 
equalist people and a bunch of civilians. A, a bunch of kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. It's like super uncomfortable. And I and I actually really like how uncomfortable that task force makes me. Yeah. And and that Cora gets a hundred percent goaded into it. Mm-hmm. Because Tarlock entirely plays her to get her in front of that group of people where her ego would be bruised and her pride would be bruised by it. And she he, agrees to go along with it. He, he gives her a pretty dress. He throws a party in her honor. Uh, I, all of those uh, reporters uh, that was so staged. Like you could tell, like he, he looks from one reporter to the ne- Like he looks at the next person that's going to ask a question before they ask a question. So <laughs> that w- that was so set up and specifically to goad her into accepting this job. What a yeah. pure shitlord. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. a politician. I, I want to say, while we're talking about that party, I, I fucking love Tenzin's uh, like dress robes <laughs> that he wore to the party. So cool. I, I, Tenzin is, is a pimp. Um, and we get the, the, Milo, no, that is not a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was great. That Man, was of, great. All, of all the kids that he brings with him to the party, he has, you know, a, a father and son night out on the town. Why, Milo? Why will you take Milo to a party like that? <laughs> That's pretty great. This episode has a lot to do with, like, my burgeoning Tenzin love, too, mm-hmm. in that he, um, his support of Korra. Like he was came off as like the stern master mm-hmm. in the first episode, and you thought they were going to have that relationship. But he is so concerned for Cora's emotional state, and sees totally through what she's worried about, mm-hmm. but can't get her to talk about it until the end. And we had talked about her reaction, like her breakdown at the end of this episode. But I love Tenzin's support that he gives her. Yeah, it's it's really a lot to do with like Tenzin is just a, a really fascinating character to me. I, I know we're comparing this to Angel more than Buffy, but he's the, the Giles. Definitely the Giles. Yeah. He's yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Good good call. Because Avatar doesn't have a Giles, really. Right. Well, I guess you could make a case that Iroh is, is Zuko's Giles, but still. Yeah. No real Avatar. No 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 um no Giles for the Avatar. Who who watches the who who avatars the Avatar? <laughs> um <laughs> So I want to talk about the voice actors, uh, the the guest voice actors in these episodes. Okay. Uh, as uh, Shady Shin, we have Fisher Stevens. Oh, no way. Who continues to pop up in the most random uh, franchises that I love. <laughs> like, I still, I, it's, I'm still surprised every time I remember he was in Lost. Um, and, and here he plays Shady Shin. Uh, Maurice LaMarche, the great veteran yes. voice actor, shows up as uh, the announcer. Uh, uh, I just show him as additional voices. I didn't know what he did, but yeah, Maurice LaMarche is a, awesome. I love him. Yeah, and Kevin Michael Richardson has a few roles uh, in one of the episodes. He plays Butaka, Lightning Bolt Zolt. Wait, wait, wait. I... Maurice LaMarche, like the brain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, pl- he plays an, an announcer in The Revelation. Oh my gosh, I totally missed that. Yep. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. Another veteran voice actor, and in his case, Reno 911 actor, uh, that we get in the revelation is uh, Carlos Alosraki uh, as the uh, Equality Now protester that Cora uh, roughs up a little bit. Uh, and then the big one, and it's, uh, besides Daniel Day Kim, the big one is the voice actor who plays Asami, Seychelle Gabriel. Yep. 
She played. I I was shocked to discover this. She played Princess Yue in the Avatar movie. In in M Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender. <laughs> that blows that, my damn mind. <laughs> that is so bizarre. Like that they would even want to be associated with anyone who was involved in the making of that movie. Um, I love just, that. I love that. I I means, think that means is that really wonderful. Somebody survived that tragedy. So well, they obviously they saw it. You know, um, DiMartino and. And I'm blanking the other name. Kanitsko. Kanitsko went and saw it and were like and had enough presence of mind to say, She's awesome. Let's go let's go work with her. I think what probably happened was they could not bear to witness what was happening on screen, so they just shut their eyes real tight and all they could hear were the voices. They're like, Oh, she sounds good. We should use her sometime. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 she's I had no idea. That's amazing. Anyways, she does a great job as a Sonic. So, by the way, we are still going to talk about that movie at some point on this podcast. It is going to happen. I'm down. I'm down for it. Okay, I I have I have a moment when we should do it. I actually know when we should do it. Okay, and it is after season two. Oh, interesting. And here, and here, I'm going to say this now. I was going to say this at the beginning of season two, and I'm actually going to say it again at the beginning of season two. But season two is definitely my least favorite season of Korra. It has a lot of really important stuff, and I like a lot of what comes out of season two, but I'm going to say that I think season two is the messiest and maybe the worst season, and maybe the worst season of all of the seasons we're watching. So if we're going to watch it, that is when to watch it, because it will not, it, it has, it, it will be the least downer. It'll be the, it's still going to be better than that movie, but it'll be the, the least, it'll be the smallest cliff of quality that we can, we're ever going to get the rest of the time. So, so you're saying we should watch it after season two, not before season two to make season two look as good as possible. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> he's, no, he's no, still because... trying to postpone it. He's still trying to push it as far. Okay, as right. I, would do, I would do it after that. But so here's what we're going to do. No, we're going to, we're going to, Oh man. See, no. Cause if we do it after season <laughs> one, we're going to be like totally into what happened with season one. And then we're going to watch that. And then we're going to read the the search mm-hmm. and it's just going to be a, a shit sandwich <laughs> it's going to be a shit sandwich no matter what you know what whatever all right all right we're going to do this we're going to do it at the end of season one we're going to do it between season one and the search Arlo, okay you win, you win. wow all right wow one victory I, i've won in my life well was, we haven't seen this movie yet let's not call it a victory <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, just so everyone is clear, Shyamalan still thinks a sequel is happening. Yeah, that's right. He talks it's about been, it every once in a while. It's been six years since this movie flopped and everyone hated it, and he is still pretty confident that he's getting a sequel. Man, I I, I actually cannot wait to watch this. <laughs> I kind of can't either. Oh my god. So uh, I want to. I, I need to make a real, a really. I have an important question about this episode to get away from this fucking movie. But it kind of <laughs> yeah. back off. Was Asami Sato riding a Vespa? <laughs> she kind of was. Yeah, she calls it a moped later, but yeah, it, it really looked like a Vespa. All right. So Asami Sato, <laughs> Vespa rider. She and, and that is the only reason Mako is still alive because if she had hit him with exactly. anything other than a Vespa, he would be totally dead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But thankfully, thankfully, it was only a Vespa. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, um, I, I'm I'm really excited to have Sami in the show. I'm sorry I had to bring her up again because I'm excited to have her in. But there's not a whole lot to talk to talk about with her, except that she's great. 
and the Fire Ferrets now have the money to be in the championship. Exactly. Because of her rich ass. So, well, I guess her dad's rich ass. <laughs> I like when Mako says he would get it, get uh, Future Industries tattooed on his chest. That, that's yeah. a great moment because I feel like even even knowing what happens, as I'm watching that scene, you almost expect Mako to say, no, I don't, no, I don't want your money. Like, you know, you almost expect him to say, no, I, I, I want to do this myself or whatever. You know, it's, it all, you, it really feels like a moment where he could be like, no, I'm not going to take your money. But he's like, fuck yeah, I'll take your money. Hell yes. I'll wear whatever you want me to wear. <laughs> he's like, yeah, sure. I want to play this game. I don't care. Yeah. I just want to be the way. If you contribute to the Arlo gets a PS4 GoFundMe, I will wear whatever the hell you want me to. Just so we're clear. Oh, geez, let's make this a thing. This has all to bets are off. Now. <laughs> yeah, whatever company wants to sponsor the Avatar podcast, I will get your symbol tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Holy crap! This is getting real. Uh, and that's the story of how Eric got a Trump steaks tattoo emblazoned <laughs> across his chest. Hey, I know steaks. They're my favorite meal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's geez. the question here's the big question i have uh what does amon think about the all women reboot of ghostbusters oh wow <laughs> that's what i want to know <laughs> oh jeez. paul you should probably take us out of this yeah it's not going to get any better than that so <laughs> Uh, well, that was awesome. Uh, I, I had a good time with those. And that was only two chapters. Next week, we're going to do three. We're having yep. so much fun. We're going to up the ante next week. So uh, in the meantime, thank you, everybody, for uh, for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Uh, links will also be posted on our parent show's site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show on iTunes uh, to make sure you never miss another exciting episode while you're there. Be a hero and rate us or write us a review. Help spread the word. Uh, there is a huge fan base out there, and we have barely scratched the surface. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence to tarpodcast at gmail.com. And you know what? Go ahead and address those to Monkey Yahtzee. I feel bad that we've uh, we've left our email lemur behind, so he will still be manning uh our email service. He will read Lucky all of your Yahtzee lives on in my heart. He will read all of your correspondence. So correspondence. <laughs> I'm not letting that go. Uh, and of course you can always find us on social media, uh, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash T a R podcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt 1013. Eric is at salon. That's S a a L O N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. Next week, uh, we're so into it, we're going to add an extra chapter. We're doing three chapters next week, 105 through 107. The Spirit of Competition, and the Winner Is, and the Aftermath. Uh, until then, remember, the morning is evil. There's nothing like summer in the city Someone in a rush next to someone looking pretty Excuse me miss, I know it's not funny But your perfume smells like your daddy's got money While you slumming in the city in your fancy heels You searching for an urchin who can give you ideals Sir, you disgust me Ah, so you disgust me I'm a trust fund, baby, you can trust me I've been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine So men say that I'm intense or I'm insane You want a revolution, I want a revelation So listen to my declaration We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created